Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Martin Pierce, and welcome to this latest Policy Forum pod. Get set, Australia, because for the next eight weeks, you are going to be in election mode. Expect plenty of politicians making promises, perhaps a bit of pork barrelling, and maybe even some kissing of babies' heads. But beyond that, we hope there'll be plenty of interesting policy for voters to mull over. And that's what we're here today to talk about. We are in the beautiful surroundings of Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, and with me I have three experts from Crawford School with plenty of policy experience. Sue Regan is a policy analyst with a particular expertise in social policy. Uh, She was also a former political advisor to the UK Blair government. Hello, Sue. Hello, Martin. Bob Cotton is a visiting fellow at Crawford School and works with the National Security College. He's also a former diplomat who served the majority of his time in the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, Bob. Good morning, Martin. And finally, last but not least, uh, Quentin Grafton is a professor of economics and also editor-in-chief of PolicyForum.net. Hello, Quentin. Hi, Martin. Glad to be here. Thanks all. So what we're doing today is drilling down into some of the nitty-gritty of policy, what we should expect over the next eight weeks. Uh, What we do know is that the election is planned for July the 2nd, that it will be a double dissolution election. For those people who aren't in Australia or not familiar with Australian politics, that essentially means that both houses, all MPs and senators from both houses will actually contest the election. So there's a very long election campaign, plenty of time for politicians to roll out some interesting policy, and that's what we're hoping to dig down into today. So to get this started, I'd like to have a look at what the likely policy battlegrounds are going to be over the coming eight weeks or so. Perhaps, Bob, if we can get started with you, what should we expect? Uh, Thanks very much, uh, Martin. I think uh, things we are going to hear a lot about come under the title of economic management. I'm thinking here taxation policy, who's best to run the country, um, getting the budget deficit back into control, and the overall financial management of the economy. Things I don't expect to get much attention uh, would be on the foreign strategic policy side, unless they come to the fore, particularly with the submarine issue is an example of that, because it's politically high priority. So it's the economy. It's the economy, absolutely. Right, Okay, Quentin, do you agree with that? Look, I agree with Bob. I'd add some other items on that as well. So in addition to talking about the economy, I think it's the tax and transfer issues. Tax is going to feature as part of this election campaign. We've got a budget on May 3rd. There's going to be some changes in the tax and transfer system announced May 3rd, no doubt about that. So that's going to be a battleground as soon as that kicks off. There'll be other issues, uh, environment, climate change, that clearly will be an issue that uh, uh, Labor will like to fight the grounds on and uh, as well as the Greens. And then I think uh, there may be some other issues there as well around health and education, sort of the bread and butter types of issues. Uh, and then, of course, there's some um, set of issues around indus- in- industry policy. 
the, the coalition no doubt would like to fight on, on some of those grounds as well. So mm-hmm. I, who knows how it'll go, uh, but there's one sleeper that I, I think it's worth emphasising. It's not a policy per se, it's about perception. That's the issue of trust and integrity, honesty, however you want to describe those those terms, and I think that will be an important issue. It may be not explicitly talked through but it'll be part of what will dominate I think the election people will be looking for the integrity issue and they'll be looking on multiple sides of the the house so to speak to see where they may find uh, what they think is a believable platform and a believable set of policies. Do you think the integrity issue has been ramped up by the history of Australian politics over the last few years or so? Oh absolutely. First term politicians. uh, Yeah obviously prime ministers losing their their office (laughs) during uh, during a term, but but a whole set of issues around integrity in terms of a royal commission, in terms of what politicians say and what they actually do. But it's not just an Australian phenomenon; it's a it's a global phenomenon. We're seeing it in the United States, United Kingdom, Canada. Very, it's 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 a global phenomenon, and so I, I think that issue of trust integrity is going to be part of this campaign, even if it may not feature explicitly. It will be there implicitly. So, Sue, we've talked about already the economy, tax and transfer systems, health, education, industry, and Quentin touched on the sort of trust deficit in Australian politics. Are there any other uh, policy areas that you'd like to throw into the mix that you expect to see covered? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, each of the main parties will want to broach these issues from different perspectives. So, I mean, economic management is clearly uh, a strong domain for the coalition and they'll want to talk about jobs in the economy uh, uh, whereas for Labour I, I mean they will want to emphasize that it's also about jobs in the economy but from a I think a different perspective which is really around fairness and equality um, and that's the lens that I expect they will you know look at these issues from and I think which they'll use to try and distinguish themselves uh, so they'll look at the tax and transfer issues but more from a sense of Uh, you know, who benefits most and who doesn't benefit from them. Um, And I think that's come out very acutely recently in the uh, changes around negative gearing, you know, with with the Prime Minister saying that he doesn't really care that a lot of the benefits go to higher earners. Um, just so, just for the for the purposes of our of our listeners who aren't in Australia, can you briefly explain what negative gearing is? So this is if you're if you invest in uh, housing in Australia, you get extra tax advantages. Uh, so you can offset uh, some of your tax against that property, um, and you know it means that uh, uh, it's a it's it's tax it's beneficial to in, invest in housing as opposed to other forms of investments. So quite a lot of people making quite a lot of money. It comes kind of a political hot potato to Indeed, do anything Indeed, you know, and in a, in a wider context where housing affordability mm. is a big issue, um, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's a, a topic which has mass appeal, so I think will be a, a topic that we'll see uh, talked about a lot in the election. I think I'd agree absolutely with all of that, and I think it has become an election issue already, the issue of negative gearing. And certainly, I think Turnbull has chosen to fight the election on that, among others. And there's been some interesting commentary recently, particularly by John Daly of the Grattan Institute, really pointing out some of the facts of the matter on negative gearing and the associated issue of capital gains. There's not much point negative gearing unless you can also eventually reap the capital gains benefit, which is at 50%, I think, of, um, of the actual capital gain. 
So all of those issues are really going to be fought hard over, and it's interesting that I think the true facts of the matter, to my way of thinking, are set out pretty well by John Daly. So there's going to be a lot of political spin and argument about this and fairness and equality, We're going to trash the housing market, etc., etc. So it's good to have some occasional commentators out there who actually point the way ahead. Mm. I'm just, I mean, I think it's... Uh, in some ways, it's very encouraging that we're having these debates already because they're, you know, they're, uh, they're policy debates we're having. And at this early stage before an election campaign has even kicked off, it's quite, I mean, you know, uh, unusual to be having policy debates of this nature. So that's a, you know, whether that can continue throughout uh, the duration of the campaign and it not become less policy focused and less evidence based uh, and more uh, in the terrain of negative campaigning which you often see uh, emerge throughout election campaigns but yes I mean it's, it's positive that we're having these policy discussions already. Quentin what chance is there of uh, the next eight weeks being focused on policy rather than politics? Well I think uh, if the Australian Labour Party and the other opposition parties want to get elected, <laughs> we elected uh, however they want to define that, they're going to have to focus on the policy issues. They have to present uh, a platform that people want to vote for. I think uh, there's always the benefit of incumbency, especially with a Prime Minister who has uh, became, uh, took that role on in September of last year, so relatively recently. So I, I think it's it's incumbent on them, and I, I think that's why the Labour Party has put out its policies already. Most of them are already defined, and there'll be more to come, no doubt, in the next few weeks. So I think they have to. They have to focus on the on the policy issues. They have to be able to, to show to the electorate that they've got a, a set of um, actions and strategies over the next uh, three years, if they were to be elected, that would lead to benefits for, for the Australian economy and, and people in general, and obviously for the people who would, who would vote for them. But I think one, one of the things I'd add to in terms of what Sue was saying, and I, in fact I agree with her, is this fairness issue. So there's a... For, for listeners who are not from Australia, there was a, a lot of discussion the last couple of weeks about a potential Royal Commission on, on uh, banking in the financial mm -hmm. sector. That actually is not going ahead, at least, uh, at least not, uh, not, not for the moment. But, but, but this is an issue about taxing, about profit, profit shifting. This is an issue that Labor has been focused on uh, for the last uh, 18 months, and I think they've done very well out of it. And it's something, no doubt, that they will keep on going and, and, and focusing on over the uh, course of the election, which gets back to this fairness issue, how much of these big companies paying in tax. Some of them are paying less tax, in fact, than an ordinary taxpayer is paying. So those are the sorts of stories that they want to come through with. There have been uh, nefarious behaviours of various people working for the big banks in Australia. Uh, they want to focus in on those sorts of behaviours and say, well, you know, who's doing what, why they're getting away with this, etc., etc. So I just wanted to compliment that discussion. I think, I think we're in a case of being in furious agreement with each other here, Martin, <laughs> but um, so just to add to both of those points, I, I think this equity and fairness and what appeals to the Australian people in the election campaign is an important one. For my own money, I think Labor has got its act together really pretty well. It's much more coherent in its policy output. And I think it is, uh, no doubt, be seen to taking a gamble, but I think it's the right one to be actually out there this time on climate change. Mm. That has been such a damaging debate in recent elections and it's seen the death of several prime ministers, kind of, and uh, opposition leaders. Yet they do seem to have a fairly coherent set of policies just recently announced, uh, restoring an emissions trading scheme, carbon pricing, um, getting rid of direct action, committing to higher renewable activity, can be a higher emissions reductions, all of which I think the Australian people and the Australian voters are now 
wanting to hear because I think it's been a pretty negative couple of years on that front and I personally think taking Australia backwards on that issue. Mm. And the question will be how much airtime that gets during the election campaign. I mean I agree it's promising but there's a there's a lot of other issues that could crowd it Oh, absolutely. Um, and it is, I agree, it's difficult terrain for the coalition government. Uh, I th- they will not want it to be an election issue. So, um, yeah, well, it's an interesting one. I mean, and on that subject, are there policy areas that won't be a focus over the next eight weeks that there really should be? Yes, I mean, I mean, not a specific area. I mean, there's something that I crave out for and I think a lot of people in the community crave out for which is a bit more policy vision uh still so much of the debate is around short-term changes uh I mean climate change policy obviously takes us into that longer Hmm. um horizon but I think um you know having the leaders of the main parties really set out a a vision in policy terms for the country would be would be wonderful um i don't know if it will happen um but i mean other areas that i don't think will get the the profile that some of us might want i think are around uh you know perhaps indigenous well-being um I mean, I, you know, my view is that the Labour Party should take the fairness debate one step further and, you know, really focus on some social justice issues, talk about poverty. Um, but, you know, I think that's probably unlikely to happen. Quentin, anything else that, that, that you would think should be a focus over the next eight weeks, but probably won't? Well, as an economist, I'd like to focus on numbers. So uh, it's all very well to say, you know, go for growth or, you know, be fair. Mm. But what does that actually mean? So so specifics and, and budgeted numbers associated with those policies, uh, we do do that in Australia. So uh, I'd very much like to have that sooner rather than later. So we actually know how much this costs uh, and what actually we're getting and who's paying for it. That goes for across the board in terms of whichever party platform we're talking about. But I think that's really important. The, the second thing I'd, I'd really like to see, and it has been done in the previous elections, is the issue of truth. So actually just going through and verifying you know, what, 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 what the politician has said, does it actually hold water, so to speak? Yes. Um, that often doesn't really get the attention that it deserves. But, but it gets back to Sue and Bob's point. You know, we want to have a I think all of us, all Australians, want to have a discussion and dialogue about meaningful issues, not the colour of people's ties, and to therefore make a decision based on the information that is reasonably accurate. And so we know what we're voting for, we know what we're getting. If that can happen, then I think it will be a brilliant election campaign and good for Australia. Uh, that's, let's just hope that that, in fact, does occur. And and on my side, as I think I said earlier, I think we're not going to hear much on the security foreign policy space. Uh, Again, like Sue, I'd rather would like a bit more vision in that space. But unless some accident or some nasty thing happens that comes up and actually throws the government off course, such as the uh, Papua New Guinea Supreme Court decision yesterday, which really is um, speaks to the value set behind our border control policy. And there's 
great unease at that in the community, equally their strong determination to maintain the policy. So essentially I think there's a broad degree of bipartisanship in the major parties here, and I think on both sides, politically in an election campaign, they'd rather push it out there. It's a kind of a pity because, you know, we've just been celebrating Anzac Day and there we have our troops still in Afghanistan since 2001, still in Iraq, and there's a wider debate behind that about why are they there, how long are they there, is this genuine Australian security policy or is it ANZUS Alliance stuff? Uh, you can talk about ISIS and the threat of international terrorism. I think there's broad, broad agreement on that. So they're both, they'll both look to score points off each other as they can uh, on various bits of the national security foreign policy space, but I don't expect it to be terribly illuminating, sadly. All right, well, that sounds like a good way to end part one. So stay with us, listeners, because we'll be right back. And when we come back, we'll be looking at the what is and will be of policy commitments. Welcome back. Uh, So we've had a look at the key policy areas. Now let's have a look at some of the nitty-gritty of all of that and dig down into what's been promised so far and what we should expect. Perhaps, Quentin, if we can start with you, what policy commitments, key policy commitments do we know so far and what should we expect over the next eight weeks or so? So let's focus on tax and transfer issues because I think they'll be one of the big plays within the election. So Labor's come out and made some statements about negative gearing. So they're going to restrict negative gearing to new homes. They're going to also change the capital gains tax uh, deduction. Uh, so in other words, there'll be greater capital gains tax paid. So that will affect the, the, the nature of the tax benefits for investors. So that's right out there. The Liberal Party has responded by saying they are not going to touch negative gearing. So that's off the table as far as they're concerned. Labor's also put a policy set of policies up in terms of superannuation changes. So that's what they're calling a positive policy, but it's you know, what they call taxing the very well off. So basically the, uh, the, the, the tax uh, is at 15% in terms of the uh, payments into the into, in super funds. And so they're now going to raise that to 30% at a lower income threshold. So at the moment, if you're $300,000 and above, you're paying at 30%. Now they're going to drop that, that threshold down. And then the Greens have come in just, just in the last couple of days, and they're talking about a minimum tax, which is sort of uh, an idea that's been around a long time. This is a personal income tax. This is a personal about. income tax. So what that means is that if you're over a certain income level, which I believe it's 250000 then you'd be uh, paying at least uh, 35%. So regardless of deductions for negative giving or whatever it might be, your, your minimum tax would be 35%. On that subject, and just take a, a brief diversion, we go to the election in the wake of the scandal surrounding the Panama Papers. Do you think that has had any impact on either voters' expectations in this area or, or politicians' approach, and will that manifest in policy in any way? Look, I think it, it will. It's, it, it's, it's a fundamental issue that Sue raised earlier, and that's about fairness. So people need to feel that they are paying their appropriate share, but that others are as well, whether that be companies well-off or less well-off or whatever it might be. I think that's a big issue. I don't think the tax system in Australia is particularly uh, simple. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's a very complex system. There's lots of deductions for all sorts of different things. So I think that's a set of issues that will need to be 
talk through and no doubt there'll be fear and all sorts of uh, things that put on the table. But I think it's clearly going to be, from my perspective, a, a key issue, uh, how much people will be paying and who's paying what. Mm. And, and, and I'd, I'd add to that uh, not only fairness but also the point Quentin made earlier about trust. And I think there's, I think personally, I think there's quite a degree of dissatisfaction, not maybe anger, out in the wider community on these issues, and it relates to company behaviour, calling for a Royal Commission on the banks and all of that is in there. Turning particularly to issues already up there, I think, uh, looking at the Liberal side, I think Labor and, and Greens are out there much more articulately with their policy set. I think Liberals are pretty light on at the moment. I'm, I'm allowing them the budget next week just to see whether that firms up a bit. But frankly, I don't expect it to do much more other than tinker around the margins with it and really kind of set a platform to go forward with an election campaign. Mm. So I think that's, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right that the, you know, I think we um, uh, we need to, uh, you know, wait for the budget to see really what, uh, the coalition's election platform might be. I think we're all being quite generous in a way, letting them, you know, they haven't got many major policy commitments at the moment, um, which of course raises expectations for the budget. So it puts them in a very difficult position. Um, and I expect uh, that we will see some things in the budget like multinational tax reform, uh, perhaps you know, similarly, some reform of superannuation, uh, which will become part of the coalition's platform. Um, I mean, it's a, you know, I mean, that obviously uh, advantages Labour to some extent, because they can, you know, it could be perceived as uh, the coalition uh, emulating some of Labour's proposals. Um, I don't think they'll go as far as Labour uh, in their proposals. But yes, until until we've had the budget, uh, we're really in the dark as to uh, some of the coalition's policy positions, particularly in this area of tax and transport, transfer reform. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Just on that, if I may, I think uh, I have a degree of sympathy with Turnbull on the Liberal Party because I think he is still fighting within the party on all these issues as much as he's fighting outside the party to win an election. And I think his election, his commitments to other parties and the nationals to actually put him put in a pretty much of a straitjacket on quite a bit of this policy stuff. And I think uh, uh, there are apparently people in the Liberal Party who believe that there should never be an increase in taxes in this country. Well, it's pretty hard to get your revenue and your expenditure in line if that's going to be a strong opinion coming into what your policy thinking. So to be fair to the, you know, to be fair to them, the political reality is they have to work that through and somehow keep it all hidden while they go through with a sort of out there uh, acceptable election platform. Yeah. So I want to add to this issue about the budget. It, it's it's a real joker in the in the pack. It's a high-risk proposition to go into an election, which is exactly what's going to happen, with a budget. You can do it, I suppose, if it's a giveaway budget and you can buy votes, so to speak, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But to go into an election with a budget, May 3rd, or an election July 2nd, it's very high risk because 
most budgets, certainly in the third year <laughs> of a government, uh, they're supposed to be giveaways, but they don't have the flexibility. Whether it, it doesn't matter which stripe of politics you support. No government would have the ability to give a bunch of giveaways in the 2016 budget. It's just not possible. So at best, it's neutral for the coalition and likely to be a negative for them because there's always going to be someone who's going to lose out in a budget declaration, which is coming out of the blue, so to speak. So I think that's going to be a problem for them. They also need a good salesperson. So we'll, you know, the public will make a judgment whether Scott Morrison can sell the budget in an effective way. He won't have much time. Typically, you've got you know, one to two weeks at most to, to get the message out there and sell the budget. If they haven't succeeded, that'll be a big dent for them in the, uh, in the election campaign. So I think the budget is really the, the kickoff phase for the election. It will be the shape the first two, three, four weeks of the election. So uh, if they get it right, if the coalition wins on the budget, I, I think they, they're going to do pretty well, I suppose, at least in the first half of the campaign. If they don't, then uh, I think that's uh, going to be a, a problematic for them. Just adding to that and coming, if you like, to the sort of uh, raw politics of the matter, in addition to what Quentin has said, uh, a double dissolution election really means that the quota you require to get a senator are elected in the upper house, the Senate, reduces from about 14.5% to about 7%. So the possibility of the Senate returning quite a number of independents who may well have different opinions on the issue of the legislation that called on the double dissolution. And there are already quite a number of independents. Already quite a number. So that could be seen as a bit of a political loss for Turnbull if he does go through all of this pain and anguish that Quentin's talking about, along with the budget at reception, and still basically come back with a marginally improved position. On the other side, Labor, to win authority to get government, has to pick up about 1920 seats before it can get there. And that's a big big margin to catch up. It's a big up. swing. It's a big it? swing required and a, a swing is never uniform across the country. Just to come back on to the budget question, Quentin, can I put you on the spot and get you to look into your crystal wall? What would you expect to actually see in that budget? Hard to say. They've ruled out a, a bunch of stuff, but they haven't actually been explicit about what they're going to do. So certainly superannuation changes on the on the cards, but I don't know what that would be. Something similar to, to Labor, perhaps, but I, I really don't know. There, there could be a whole range of things in terms of not only for people who are contributing, but those people who are receiving superannuation payments. Uh, there may be some issues about the, the wealth test, etc. So I suspect something along those lines. I would say that they would have to show some policy development on the tax front beyond superannuation to be credible, as in, you know, that this is the Turnbull government, this is the Turnbull government bringing and setting its, its footprint in the sand in some sense of what it, it's moving towards. So I suspect there'll have to be some tax changes, and I'm not sure what those might be. Obviously, this is top secret, this is budget stuff, but, but I, I would imagine they'll do some other tax tweaks. Uh, it won't be tax reform is how I define it, but there'll be some tax tweaks which I think will try and uh, burnish their credentials as a sort of a, a tax reforming type government. So any insights as to what we might expect from the budget in sort of social policy? Well, I, I mean, I think um, I think it's a matter of what we won't see in the budget. So I think lots of the uh, reforms that were put forward in the 2014 budget uh, in terms of changes to the tax the, the benefit side of the tax and benefit the, uh, system um, which you know were a key reason why that budget was so 
publicly labelled as unfair, uh, things like making young people wait six months before they could access benefits. I think we won't see a lot of that in the budget. So, I mean, I mean, I, I'm expecting, and I think this is really Turnbull's hope, is that the budget is perceived um, as being kind of sensible, uh, but low-key, um, and that he can quickly move on and talk about uh, some broader policy issues uh, away from the budget. Uh, I think because he's in a no-win situation with the budget, uh, you know, he can't raise taxes because of, you know, as Bob's described with uh, the position with many people in his party and his the, the parties that he partners with. Um, you know, and he uh, he can't give away any money. It can't be, as Quentin said, a giveaway budget, which is, you know, what most uh, prime ministers like and tend to do as the budget that's leading up to a, a general or federal election. Uh, so he's in a no-win situation, um, you know, and also because, you know, in some of the areas that he can do some things, uh, they're in the very areas that Labour's already announced major policies. Um so I think, and uh, I think Turnbull will hope that it is really a low-key uh, budget. And I should say it's not, um, you know, it, in some ways his job uh, will be made harder by the uh, the, the strength of uh, independent analysis outside of government now. Uh, so Peter Whiteford here at Crawford and Ben, ben Phillips elsewhere at the ANU um, do very rigorous uh, distributional analysis um, and they're not afraid to put that out there so I think it will become very clear not long after the budget you know going back to this point on fairness who the budget benefits and who it doesn't um, yes so but who knows what the budget will say it may it may surprise us it's certainly true these days that a politician can't can't make a statement without being it being run by some kind of fact check the abc do yeah. a, a, a lot of this so certainly people get picked up on 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 well, these, I, these I, I think that's a damn good thing yes, and absolutely. i suspect the voters yeah. absolutely agree with it and just coming back to policy and the points that sue was making a couple of weeks back uh, the committee of economic development of australia uh, made a, had put a fair bit of work into the various options available to governments uh, to deal with the, um, the the sort of budget deficit, as well as with Australia's sort of continuing debt problem, and had and what should have the priority in those terms. And they were arguing fairly strongly that you should fix the budget deficit first before you seriously go on and do major tax reform. But they said it's possible to do a bit of both and they gave at least five different varieties or options as to how you might do that, which was a pretty good sort of bit of public policy debate out there. But again, I don't expect any of that to be picked up. I think it'll be budget light again. And as Sue says, to give a uh, steady platform, here we are, we're doing some things, but we'll do more things if you re-elect us, and away they go for the election campaign. If I may, I just wanted to move on, if we could, Martin, to the point about the sort of politics of the matter again. I know I keep harping on about this, but it is important when you're dealing as a policy maker and a policy thinker to when you engage with the ministers and politicians out there, of course, in their minds, power is what they're on about, getting power, uh, using power, keeping power, and hopefully using power to good effect nationally. And so when they hear a policy proposal, they're thinking, yeah, that sounds all right, but how's this going to play out in political terms? What does the cabinet think? What does the party think? What do my electors think? And so a really good minister will try and bring those things together, but many look to put the political interest first and foremost. And you're in a period right now where the political interest, the power game, 
and we shouldn't be afraid of that because that's what it is. And I've been in countries where the power game's played very differently and violently. So it's a, it's a it's a ugly working democracy at play here, and we've got to keep pushing the public policy into it. I think that's a fantastic statement, Bob. But that's what we're doing here in the policyforum.net. In this discussion, it's about engaging, working with the policies. What do they mean for Australians? How can we do better? That's the dialogue we want. That's the election campaign we want. Whatever political persuasion you might have, we want to have that engagement so we know what we're going to vote for. We hopefully know what we're going to get. Well, that sounds like a good place to wrap up part two. So stay with us, listeners, because in part three, we're going to be asking the uh, panellists to put their money where their mouth is and suggest an actual policy that politicians should take to the voters. Welcome back. We're still here with Quentin, Sue and Bob. And uh, in this final section, we're going to be asking them to move beyond analysis and pitch an actual policy to us. What we're looking for is essentially what the policy is, how it would work, and perhaps how we'd actually pay for it. Who would like to go first? Bob, I'm looking at you. I'll go first. Um, I've got a number, but the one I will select for you is, I think, a whole lot more policy work and and commitment on infrastructure development in the country. Uh, It's a chance. uh, There is so much that needs to be done. There's so much outstanding. We don't have the vision that we used to have when you think of the Snowy Mountain Scheme and all of that post the Second World War. This is an ideal time to be borrowing money by government at low interest rates and long-term bonds to fund infrastructure development. And we're really not hearing much about that at all. Uh, I understand that, uh, and that wouldn't be a problem in selling the bonds, the problem is, where, where are the proposals, where is the infrastructure, then how are you going to make the judgments to actually go ahead and build it? And then, of course, all the associated questions of the skills for it and, and uh, local government and, and state government engagement and all of that. But they're all issues that, that can be worked on, and I'd, I'd like to hear a lot more about that. All right, Sue, over to you, putting you on the spot. What kind of policy would you like to, uh, like to pitch? Yeah, I mean... I'm, I was thinking about this and, uh, you know, and thinking about how um, during this election period, the politicians talk to the electorate. And I think they, they tend to talk to us as economic agents. Um, and I, you know, and this is not uh, in any way denying the fact that the, you know, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, the economy is very important. Jobs is very important. But I think there's a missing piece of the the policy agenda, which is talking uh, differently, and which is, you know, which policy which is talking to me as a, a mother and as a daughter and as a member of my community. Um, so I'd like to hear a major policy announcement uh, on child well-being. I think there's a, a big, you know, lots of big issues around mental health in children, in child obesity, in the threats of new technology, um, so I think, uh, you know, I want to be talking to, yeah, not as an economic agent, really, uh, as more of a social being and have a, have a major policy announcement on child well-being. I think, I think I absolutely agree with Sue, but I think both sides of politics take bits of that and sort of, you know, give, give that um, force and, 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 and sort of commitment. But really, the over sort of, sort of vision and priority that she's talking about, I don't think we've heard in that way, no. And I think the issue is, I think it... Uh, for it not to be 
superficial so so for it not to be a sort of lightweight national strategy uh it would require some investment um and that's where it becomes tricky because we're not in a spending environment um but you know you could um you could look at how you might divert some of the savings from superannuation tax reform uh into a child well-being strategy um but you know, it's uh, uh, I think where the money comes from um, is an important issue. But uh, uh, I think that's the secondary issue. Thanks. So, uh, Quentin, over to you. What policy would you like to pitch to the voters? Well, I'm going to cop out on this one <laughs> and answer a different question in some sense. Are you a politician, <laughs> Quentin? No, no. His work will let me let me just. Uh, preface what I mean by this, I see a fundamental problem in Australian public policy and in terms of how we do business is when policy silos. So there's a particular policy for this, another policy for that. So, you know, the innovation policy, we've got the productivity agenda. So they seem to be disconnected. And in fact, typically they are very much disconnected. So I would be arguing for rather than a particular policy is for policy coherence is the bridges across these policy silos. So if we're talking about tax reform, then you've got to talk about negative gearing. You talk about superannuation. You talk about income tax. You talk about GST. You talk about company tax. You have to put them in together as a package. To try and whittle them off in little parts here and there is a total waste of time or close to a total waste of time. So that's what I'm talking about is policy coherence. If we're talking about innovation, we need to talk about education in terms of universities, in terms of the high schools and primary schools. That's what I mean by policy coherence. That's what I would be looking for rather than just an announcement every week or every day during an election campaign. Let's see how coherent these sets of policies are. Do they add up to something that's absolutely meaningful and then on top of that i'd actually do some costings for business as usual we are in trouble in australia i'm not pressing any panic button but income levels have flatlined the last three years we face substantial risks in terms of china and the global economy we need to have policies coherent sets of policies that will take us forward so the cost of business as usual and business as usual i'm not pointing fingers at any particular party i'm going back the next the past decade so it includes both sets of of the uh, of the parties and, and the houses uh, i'm talking here about what we have done and what we haven't done there are a number of things that we haven't done and i think that's what I would like to focus in on the cost of business as usual. Everyone talks about, oh, well, the cost of changing this or the cost of changing that or the cost of this new policy. Let's just think about what is the cost of doing nothing or cost of doing business as usual. And let me tell you, from my perspective, it is enormous, the cost of business as usual, as in the lost opportunities for Australia. That's what I'd like to have on the table. And that's the sort of debate I hope that we can move towards between now and July 2nd. My own, my own feeling is that I think quite a few in the Australian community probably feel the same way. I think there's a sense of wanting to be told, if you like, the truth and the f- full picture of what the policy could be or should be, where the nation should be moving to, and a sense of urgency 
that we should be moving on and doing and taking some decisions here. And I think that, so I think there would be a bit of an appetite for that. Uh, and of course, a lot of good work has been done over the years on some of these policies, which is um, really out there but not picked up. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. A number of times people are now referring back to the Ken Henry review of the tax system, and there is a lot of good work in there. But others have been looking at it, uh, the Murray review and so forth. So a lot of people have done a lot of good thinking. So we're starting to talk about, well, who's going to pick it up, what's the leadership, and how does that play out in, in the campaign? Yeah, yeah and... I mean, I think in some ways it comes back to something I said at the beginning around policy vision and policy leadership. I think it's, uh, I think people are uh, looking for that. Um, and it's much easier to have policy coherence uh, if you know where you're going uh, in terms <laughs> of your, your policies. It means that you can, you know, you can make a change today on uh, capital gains or superannuation, which may seem odd in isolation, but if it's part of a, a longer term agenda, which takes us forward to a situation where we have uh, a better state of the national finances and a more uh, fairer, more coherent tax system. Um, so I think those things come together and with a bit more policy vision. I think uh, I agree with you, Quentin. I think you know, policy coherence uh, has a lot of appeal. Just one other word, if I might, Martin, just think about all of this, and again, coming back to our earlier discussion on working with ministers and politicians and getting good policy up, the uh, experience often shows that you sort of have to ask yourself as a policy proponent, be it from outside government or inside working in the public service, if they're not accepting the policy, it's worth spending a bit of time saying, why? Is there something wrong with the policy? Are we not getting it? Are we not getting... Is, is the timing... Well, it could be the timing's wrong or whatever, but sometimes it's incumbent on us to go back and revisit our policy stance and settings and just say, we think it's good policy, and, and if you do, then keep pushing it up. That must be my advice, keep pushing it up, because good policy is absolutely needed in this country. And I think, I used to think, uh, that good policy led to good politics or the other way around. I think the gap between the two has kind of opened up a bit in, in my lifetime. Mind you, Bob, if you look at the polls for the last few months, uh, those individuals who are setting policy out and putting a policy agenda, whether people agree or disagree, they're the ones who seem to be doing better in the polls. And those who've abrogated their, their policy stances um, are the ones who are doing less well. So that, I think, is an indication that this notion of meaningful conversations, politicians actually engaging, being frank, being t telling us what, what their vision is and, and being clear about it, we may not necessarily agree with it, but I think that's the sort of thing that people are looking for. And the politics as usual, you know, the sort of playing games, I don't think people are looking for that. And I think the politicians will be ultimately punished for the sort of political games and ploys that, uh, that have maybe worked in the past. Well, some excellent ideas there, some, uh, as well as a plea for policy coherence. We'll watch with interest to see if any of those ideas pop up over the next eight weeks or so but for now that's all we've got time for so let me just say thank you Quentin thank you Bob and thank you Sue it's been a very interesting discussion thanks Martin thanks, thanks Martin. Martin don't forget you can keep up to date with all of the latest discussions and analysis on public policy in Australia and the broader region at policyforum.net. We're certainly interested to hear your comments about what we've discussed today. Um, do that via the website or via our social media channels. We are at 
Apps Policy Forum on Twitter and Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook. Uh, if you've enjoyed what we have talked about today, uh, give us a review on iTunes, help us get the word out. But until next time, thanks very much. Cheerio. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.